We all woke up in the middle of the night. We walked out into the town. We looked up at the clock tower in the town square, the black clock. It didn't ring, but we all heard it. Black Clock Audio Tales, hosted by me, D.B. Spitzer. This month, more Anne Radcliffe. The castles, uh, my, I don't have my glasses on. Anthony and Dundane, uh, our reader this month will clarify the name. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, this episode is brought to you by... Uh, Uncle Owen's Goat Farm, uh, finest chef in the region. Uh, you can pick that up at A1 Grocery. And also, hey, Oblivions, our patio is open during the pandemic. And as we all know, Oblivions has the biggest patio uh, for Oktoberfest, St. Patty's Days. And if you want to rent it for your next get-together in the upcoming months when we're able to have get-togethers, they are... Yeah, no, you can you can rent the uh, beer garden and it, it'll all be great. Anyway, thank you so much. Black Clock Audio Tales, 1130 AM, KZOM, the place to be and be seen. That is such a stupid slogan. Why do we... You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Lauren Randall The Castles of Othlin and Dunbane by Anne Radcliffe Chapter 9 It was at this period that one stormy evening the Countess was sitting with her family in a room, the windows of which looked upon the sea. The winds burst in sudden squalls over the deep and dashed the foaming waves against the rocks with inconceivable fury. The spray, notwithstanding the high situation of the castle, flew up with violence against the windows. The earl went out upon the terrace beneath to contemplate the storm. The moon shone faintly by intervals through broken clouds upon the waters, illumining the white foam which burst around, and enlightening the scene sufficiently to render it visible. The surges broke on the distant shores in deep, resounding murmurs, and the solemn pauses between the stormy gusts filled the mind with enthusiastic awe. As the earl stood wrapped in the sublimity of the scene, the moon, suddenly emerging from a heavy cloud, showed him at some distance a vessel driven by the fury of the blast towards the coast. He presently heard the signals of distress, and soon after shrieks of terror, and a confused uproar of voices were borne on the wind. He hastened from the terrace to order his people to go out with boats to the assistance of the crew, for he doubted not that the vessel was wrecked. But the sea ran so high as to make the adventure impracticable. The sound of voices ceased, and he concluded that the wretched mariners were lost, when the screams of distress again struck his ear, and again were lost in the tumult of the storm. In a moment after, the vessel struck upon the rock beneath the castle. An universal shriek ensued. The earl, with his people, hastened to the assistance of the crew. The fury of the gust was now abated, and the earl, jumping into a boat with Alan and some others, rowed to the ship, where they rescued a part of the drowning people. They were conducted to the castle, and every comfort was liberally administered to them. Among those whom the earl had received into his boat was a stranger, whose dignified aspect and manners bespoke him to be of rank. He had several people belonging to him, but they were foreigners and ignorant of the language of the country. He thanked his deliverer with a noble frankness that charmed him. 
In the hall they were met by the countess and her daughter, who received the stranger with a warm welcome, which compassion for his situation had inspired. He was conducted to the supper-room, where the magnificence of the board exhibited only the usual hospitality of his host. The stranger spoke English fluently, and displayed in his conversation a manly and vigorous mind, acquainted with the sciences and with life, and the cast of his observations seemed to characterize the benevolence of his heart. The earl was so much pleased with his guest, that he pressed him to remain at his castle till another vessel could be procured. His guest, equally pleased with the earl, and a stranger to the country, accepted the invitation. New distress now broke upon the peace of Othlin. Several days had expired, and the messenger, who had been sent to Malcolm, did not appear. It was almost evident that the baron, disappointed and enraged at the escape of his prisoner, and eager for a sacrifice, had seized this man as the subject of a paltry revenge. The earl, however, resolved to wait a few days and watch the event. The struggles of latent tenderness and assumed indifference banished tranquility from the bosom of Mary, and pierced it with many sorrows. The friendship and honors bestowed by the earl on Allan, who now resided solely at the castle, touched her heart with a sweet pride. But, alas, these distinctions served only to confirm her admiration of that worth, which had already attached her affections and afforded him opportunities of exhibiting, in brighter colors, the various excellencies of a heart noble and expansive, and of a mind whose native elegance meliorated and adorned the bold vigor of its flights. The languor of melancholy, notwithstanding the efforts of Mary, would at intervals steal from beneath the disguise of cheerfulness, and diffuse over her beautiful features an expression extremely interesting." The stranger was not insensible to its charms, and it served to heighten the admiration with which he had first beheld her into something more tender and more powerful. The modest dignity with which she delivered her sentiments, which breathed the purest delicacy and benevolence, touched his heart, and he felt an interest concerning her which he had never before experienced." Alan, whose heart, amid the anxieties and tumults of the past scenes, had still sighed to the image of Mary, that image which fancy had pictured in all the charms of the original, and whose glowing tints were yet softened and rendered more interesting by the shade of melancholy with which absence and a hopeless passion had surrounded them, found amid the leisure of peace and the frequent opportunities which were afforded him of beholding the object of his attachment, his sighs redouble, and the glooms of sorrow thicken. In the presence of Mary, a soft sadness clouded his brow. He endeavored to assume a cheerfulness foreign to his heart, but endeavored in vain. Mary perceived the change in his manners, and the observation did not contribute to enliven her own. The earl, too, observed that Alan had lost much of his wonted spirits, and bantered him on the change, but thought not of his sister. Alan wished to quit a place so destructive to his peace as the castle of Othlin. He formed repeated resolutions of withdrawing himself from those walls, which held him in a sort of fascination, and rendered ineffectual every half-formed wish and every weak endeavor. When he could no longer behold Mary, he would frequently retire to the terrace which was overlooked by the windows of her apartment, and spend half the night in traversing with silent, mournful steps, that spot which afforded him the melancholy pleasure of being near the object of his love. 
Matilda wished to question Alan concerning some circumstances of the late events, and for this purpose ordered him one day to attend her in her closet. As he passed the outer apartment of the countess, he perceived something lying near the door, through which she had gone before, and examining it discovered a bracelet, to which was attached a miniature of Mary. His heart beat quick at the sight. The temptation was too powerful to be resisted. He concealed it in his bosom and passed on. On quitting the closet, he sought with breathless impatience a spot where he might contemplate at leisure that precious portrait, which chance had so kindly thrown in his way. He drew it trembling from his bosom and beheld again that countenance whose sweet expression had touched his heart with all the delightful agonies of love. As he pressed it with impassioned tenderness to his lips, the tear of rapture trembled in his eye, and the romantic ardor of the moment was scarcely heightened by the actual presence of the beloved object, whose light step now stole upon his ear, and half-turning, he beheld not the picture, but the reality. Surprised, confused, the picture fell from his hand. Mary, who had accidentally strolled to that spot, on observing the agitation of Alan, was retiring when he, in whose heart had been awakened every tender sensation, losing in the temptation of the moment the fear of disdain, and forgetting the resolution which he had formed of eternal silence, threw himself at her feet and pressed her hand to his trembling lips. His tongue would have told her that he loved, but his emotion and the repulsive look of Mary prevented him. She instantly disengaged herself with an air of offended dignity, and casting on him a look of mingled anger and concern, withdrew in silence. Alan remained fixed to the spot his eyes pursuing her retiring steps, insensible to every feeling but those of love and despair. So absorbed was he in the transition of the moment that he almost doubted whether a visionary illusion had not crossed his sight to blast his only remaining comfort, the consciousness of deserving and of possessing the esteem of her he loved. He left the place with anguish in his heart and in the perturbation of his mind forgot the picture. Mary had observed her mother's bracelet fall from his hand, and was no longer in perplexity concerning her miniature. But in the confusion which his behavior occasioned her, she forgot to demand it of him. The countess had missed it almost immediately after his departure from the closet, and had caused a search to be made, which proving fruitless, her suspicions wavered upon him. The earl, who soon after passed the spot whence Alan had just departed, found the miniature, it was not long ere Alan recollected the treasure he had dropped and returned in search of it. Instead of the picture, he found the earl. A conscious blush crossed his cheek. The confusion of his countenance informed Osbert of a part of the truth, who, anxious to know by what means he had obtained it, presented him the picture and demanded if he knew it. The soul of Alan knew not to dissemble. He acknowledged that he had found and concealed it, prompted by that passion, the confession of which no other circumstance than the present could have wrung from his heart. The earl listened to him with a mixture of concern and pity, but hereditary pride chilled the warm feelings of friendship and of gratitude, and extinguished the faint spark of hope which the discovery had kindled in the bosom of Alan. Fear not, my lord said he, the degradation of your house from one who would sacrifice his life in its defense. Never more shall the passion which glows in my heart escape from my lips. 
I will retire from the spot where I have buried my tranquility. No, replied the earl, you shall remain here. I can confide in your honor. Oh, that the only reward which is adequate to your worth and to your services, it should be impossible for me to bestow. His voice faltered, and he turned away to conceal his emotion, with a suffering little inferior to that of Alan. The discovery which Mary had made did not contribute to restore peace to her mind. Every circumstance conspired to assure her of that ardent passion which filled the bosom of him who all her endeavors could not teach her to forget, and this conviction served only to heighten her malady, and consequently her wretchedness. The interest which the stranger discovered, and the attention he paid to Mary, had not passed unobserved by Alan. Love pointed to him the passion which was rising in his heart, and whispered that the vows of his rival would be propitious. The words of Osbert confirmed him in the torturing apprehension, for though his humble birth had never suffered him to hope, yet he thought he discovered in the speech of the earl something more than mere hereditary pride. The stranger had contemplated the lovely form of Mary with increasing admiration. Since the first hour he beheld her, this admiration was now confirmed into love, and he resolved to acquaint the earl with his birth and with his passion. For this purpose, he one morning drew him aside to the terrace of the castle, where they could converse without interruption, and pointing to the ocean over which he had so lately been born, thanked the earl, who had thus softened the horrors of shipwreck and the desolation of a foreign land, by the kindness of his hospitality. He informed him that he was a native of Switzerland, where he possessed considerable estates, from which he bore the title of Count de St. Morin. That inquiry of much moment to his interests had brought him to Scotland, to a neighboring port of which he was bound, when the disaster from which he had been so happily rescued arrested the progress of his designs. He then related to the earl that his voyage was undertaken upon a report of the death of some relations, at whose demise considerable estates in Switzerland became his inheritance, that the income of these estates had been hitherto received upon the authority of powers, which, if the report was true, were become invalid. The earl listened to this narrative in silent astonishment and inquired, with much emotion, the name of the count's relations. The Baroness Malcolm, returned he. The earl clasped his hands in ecstasy. The count, surprised at his agitation, began to fear that the earl was disagreeably interested in the welfare of his adversaries, and regretted that he had disclosed the affair, till he observed the pleasure which was diffused through his features. Osbert explained the cause of his emotion, by relating his knowledge of the baroness in the progress of whose story the character of Malcolm was sufficiently elucidated. He told the cause of his hatred towards the baron, and the history of his imprisonment, and also confided to his honor the secret of his challenge. The indignation of the count was strongly excited. He was, however, prevailed on by Osbert to forgo any immediate effort of revenge, awaiting for a while the movements of Malcolm. The Count was so absorbed in wonder and in new sensations that he had almost forgot the chief object of the interview. Recollecting himself, he discovered his passion and requested permission of the Earl to throw himself at the feet of Mary. 
The Earl listened to the declaration with a mixture of pleasure and concern. The remembrance of Allan saddened his mind, but the wish of an equal connection made him welcome the offers of the Count, whose alliance, he told him, would do honor to the first nobility of his nation. If he found the sentiments of his sister in sympathy with his own on this point, he would welcome him to his family with the affection of a brother. But he wished to discover the situation of her heart, ere his noble friend disclosed to her his prepossession. The earl, on his return to the castle, inquired for Mary, whom he found in the apartment of her mother. He opened to them the history of the Count, his relationship with the Baroness Malcolm, with the object of his expedition, and closed the narrative with discovering the attachment of his friend to Mary, and his offers of alliance with his family. Mary grew pale at this declaration. There was a pang in her heart which would not suffer her to speak. She threw her eyes on the ground and burst into tears. The earl took her hand tenderly in his. "'My beloved sister,' said he, "'knows me too well to doubt my affection, or to suppose I can wish to influence her upon a subject so material to her future happiness, and where her heart ought to be the principal directress.' Do me the justice to believe that I make known to you the offers of the Count as a friend, not as a director. He is a man whom from the short period of our acquaintance I have judged to be deserving of particular esteem. His mind appears to be noble, his heart expansive, his rank is equal with your own, and he loves you with an attachment warm and sincere." But with all these advantages, I would not have my sister give herself to the man who does not meet an interest in her heart to plead his cause. The gentle soul of Mary swelled with gratitude towards her brother. She would have thanked him for the tenderness of these sentiments, but a variety of emotions were struggling at her heart and suppressed her utterance. Tears and a smile, softly clouded with sorrow, were all she could give him in reply." He could not but perceive that some secret cause of grief preyed upon her mind, and he solicited to know and to remove it. My dear brother will believe the gratitude which his kindness... She would have finished the sentence, but the words died away upon her lips, and she threw herself on the bosom of her mother, endeavoring to conceal her distress, and wept in silence. The countess too well understood the grief of her daughter, she had witnessed the secret struggles of her heart, which all her endeavors were not able to overcome, and which rendered the offers of the Count disgusting and dreadful to her imagination. Matilda knew how to feel for her sufferings, but the affection of the mother extended her views beyond the present temporary evil to the future welfare of her child, and in the long perspective of succeeding years, she beheld her united to the Count, whose character diffused happiness and the mild dignity of virtue to all around him. She received the thanks of Mary for her gentle guidance to the good she possessed. The artless looks of the little ones around her smiled their thanks, and the luxury of that scene recalled the memory of times forever past, and mingled with the tear of rapture the sigh of fond regret. The surest method of erasing that impression, which threatened serious evil to the peace of her child, if suffered to continue, and to secure her permanent felicity, was to unite her to the Count, whose amiable disposition would soon win her affections, and obliterate from her heart every improper remembrance of Allen. She determined, therefore, to employ argument and gentle persuasion to guide her to her purpose. 
She knew the mind of Mary to be delicate and candid, easy of conviction, and firm to pursue what her judgment approved, and she did not despair of succeeding. The earl still pressed to know the cause of that emotion which afflicted her. I am unworthy of your solicitude, said Mary. I cannot teach my heart to submit. To submit. Can you suppose your friends can wish your heart to submit on a point so material to its happiness, to aught that it's repugnant to its feelings? If the offers of the count are displeasing to you, tell me so, and I will return him his answer. Believe that my first wish is to see you happy. Generous Osbert, how can I repay the goodness of such a brother? I would accept in gratitude the hand of the count, did not my feelings assure me I should be miserable. I admire his character and esteem his goodness, but alas, why should I conceal it from you? My heart is another's, is another's whose noble deeds have won its involuntary regards, and who is yet unconscious of my distinction, one who shall forever remain in ignorance of it. The idea of Alan flashed into the mind of the earl, and he no longer doubted to whom her heart was engaged. My own sentiments, said he, sufficiently inform me of the object of your admiration. You do well to remember the dignity of your sex and of your rank, though I must lament with you that worth like Alan's is not empowered by fortune to take its standard with nobility. At Alan's name the blushes of Mary confirmed Osbert in his discovery. My child, said the countess, will not resign her tranquility to a vain and ignoble attachment. She may esteem merit wherever it is found, but she will remember the duty which she owes to her family and to herself in contracting an alliance which is to support or diminish the ancient consequence of her house. The offers of a man endowed with so much apparent excellence as the count, and whose birth is equal to your own, affords a prospect too promising of felicity to be hastily rejected. We will hereafter converse more largely on this subject. Never shall you have a reason to blush for your daughter, said Mary, with a modest pride. But pardon me, madam, if I entreat that we no more renew a subject so painful to my feelings, and which cannot be productive of good. For never will I give my hand where my heart does not accompany it. This was not a time to press the topic. The countess for the present desisted, and the earl left the apartment with a heart divided between pity and disappointment. Hope, however, whispered to his wishes that Mary might in time be induced to admit the addresses of the count, and he determined not wholly to destroy his hopes. End of chapter 9 Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to this episode of Black Clock Audio Tales. I've been your host, D.B. Spitzer. Check out next week's episode, you know, two a week, hey! Uh, and for those who are listening, uh, if you don't listen to some episodes, you can listen to others. Quick update, I'm no longer the mayor. Town elected a new mayor. Uh, I am Pickman. A uh, reclusive chap hangs out in the mayor's residence, doesn't really have me do a lot of stuff, is just trying to uh, get people to uh, care about Oleander, greenify it, keep it clean, um, get the cemetery back up to snuff, get people wanting to live and die in Oleander. So, hey, you know, business is huge. All right. We'll see you next time. 
And remember, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about what's going on, and we'll tell you what's going on with our friends. All right. Thank you again, and we'll talk to you later. All right.